0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Train Technologies, challenging what's possible for a sustainable future. They're taking bold action today to ensure a healthier tomorrow through efficient climate solutions for buildings, homes, and transportation. Train Technologies is committed to reducing one gigaton of emissions from their customers' footprint by 2030 and reaching net zero by 2050. Because one company can change an industry, and one industry can change the world. More at TrainTechnologies.com.
1: Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.
2: It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Norman Lear died last month. He was a writer and creator of some of the biggest and most influential sitcoms of all time. In fact, Variety published a top 100 TV shows of all time, and three of Norman Lear's shows were in there. It was just the other day. Indeed, Lear redefined what sitcoms could be. With Sanford and Son, Lear created a show that would give rise to literally dozens of African-American sitcoms. And on All in the Family, characters took on huge topics like war, race, feminism, abortion— in a way that was empathetic to both sides of every issue. Archie Bunker, for all his flaws and all the despicable things he said, became one of the most nuanced and beloved sitcom characters of all time. Lear also created The Jeffersons, Maud, Archie Bunker's Place, and many, many, many more. In 1981, he founded the progressive group People for the American Way. When I talked with Lear back in 2016, he was the subject of a PBS American Masters film called Norman Lear, Another Version of You. When he and I talked, he was in his 90s. He was still working. In the years since, he rebooted One Day at a Time. New version was great, by the way. He made a documentary with Lin-Manuel Miranda about Rita Moreno. And he was still developing TV shows right up until his passing at 101. Before I replay my conversation with Lear, I want to play a clip from All in the Family, the sitcom that changed everything.
3: What, you, you, you sure it was Sammy Davis Jr.? No, Meathead, it was some Zulu jockey. <laughs> I know the man. Besides, you give me a five-buck tip for a buck and a quarter haul anyway. And as fine a gentleman as ever you want to meet, sat there in the back of the cab talking to me about the weather, all kinds of things, just like a regular person. <laughs> In like fact, it wasn't for the rearview mirror there, I'd have thought he was a white guy. Oh, what do you got to say things like that for? What do you mean, what have I got to say things like that for? What do I say, anyhow? When you listen to these two, you can't say nothing around here. They twist around everything you say.
2: Norman Lear, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. I like being here, thank you. Well, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
3: so far... I'll get, back. I'll get back to you. Okay, great.
2: <laughs> I read that there were... Multiple pilots turned down for All in the Family. Is that true?
3: No. It was uh, three years before 1968. I made the pilot originally for ABC. And uh, they caused me to make it again. The same script, same two leads, Carol Connor and Gene Stapleton. And uh, so I made it twice for them with two different sets of young kids. Turns out to be a blessing because it took a couple of more years before a new uh, president of CBS heard about the show, saw it, and asked me to do it again, but this time promised to put it on the air. So by that time, Rob Reiner and Sally Struthers uh, were available to me or or knowledgeable to me. Uh, I knew about them and made all the difference in the world. There were great shows before, and I think they would have worked, but the chemistry between the four people uh, when Rob and Sally became part of it, just, it's miracle time. Were you still working the show?
2: Like, were you passing out uh, giant 1974 video cassettes to studio heads, or was it something that you'd given up on?
3: No, no. I Well, did I give up? I went off and made a film called Cold Turkey between the ABC two shows, two pilots, and and the CBS order, and actually, uh, you know, p- people think I was brave as hell <laughs> uh, to stand up to the network when they didn't want this or that. But I had, as a result of cold turkey, I had uh, a three-picture offer from United Artists to write, produce, and direct. I was just emotionally married to All in the Family and those characters. And I couldn't think so long as the network wanted it of doing anything else. But I did have backup should should they have made it impossible for me to do it.
2: It's an incredible commitment to work on a sitcom because you have to make it every week. Like you're making it 25 plus times a year. And if you're successful, you're doing that for years on end. Why did you want to do that and not, uh, you know, take a movie deal and
3: uh, make a movie a year? Well, all of it, either uh, effort, all starts with needing to make a living for a growing family. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Everything that came out of all of that came out of all of that. It wasn't anticipated. It wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't uh, done with knowledge or forethought as to what, where we were going to get with it. Uh, And we were working too hard to be thinking about anything else but the next script.
2: Did you believe that All in the Family was going to be... I mean, I'm sure you believed in All in the Family artistically. You can tell me if you didn't believe in All in the Family artistically. (laughs) Please let me know. But uh, I I bet that you loved the show and believed in it in that sense. Oh, I did. And as soon
3: as it was cast, uh, you know, I'm a permanent member of the audience. I've lived my life sitting down to see something and with the attitude, take me. And uh, I want to be had. I want you to take me. Uh, And as an audience member, I, you know, the performance (laughs) of those four people, the chemistry in every direction as between the four of them, uh... I worked hard to 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 help it to get it, but I also never stopped adoring the laughter, you know, my own laughter, and early on thinking it's adding time to my life.
2: That's interesting. Did you think that it was going to be a hit show? Because uh, it wasn't a huge hit show. Initially, it was it no, was a claim no. show initially, but not yeah, a, and, smash and show. in
3: some ways it was frowned on. I mean, it was majorly frowned on. Uh, but some very poor reviews at the beginning, but then they started to get better. Everybody didn't realize what we were trying to do. Um, it, you know, if it hadn't gone on in January, it there might, it might never have happened because. What occurred was bad ratings until maybe May or something. When the other two networks' shows, there were only three networks, that's hard to believe. (laughs) Um, When their shows were going into reruns, we still had a couple to go. So the audience that was there for the other two networks came to us because they'd heard about this new show. And the ratings started to tick up in the last couple of uh, episodes of the initial 13. And that's when the network decided to pick it up. For a while, the
2: show ran with a disclaimer that's shown in the American Masters documentary. (laughs) And I was looking at that disclaimer, and it's so so sincere (laughs) and so... Like, it is the lamest thing I've ever seen in my, you know, it it goes, I don't have the text in front of me, but it's like, oh, it's an attempt to shed light on, you know, social conditions in our great nation and blah, 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 that ran before this show that was fresh and new on the air.
3: But there might be something to offend you, so know that, you know, yeah. go, go
2: with caution. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, it's not like a, there's there's 0% defiance in it. It is completely conciliatory. And as I said, like s- absurdly sincere. Um, you'd think that you were about to watch like an after school special or something like that, <laughs> not a sitcom about a family. And uh, I wonder if there was like a discussion about whether that was going to run and uh, what it was going to say before the show premiered or whether that just appeared.
3: Well, if you remember uh, the first episode, uh, Archie and Edith were uh, at church. It was a Sunday morning. It was their 25th wedding anniversary. The kids, Mike and Gloria, were preparing a brunch, surprise brunch, while they were at church. And uh, so they had whatever was cooking was cooking, and uh, the balloons were hung, and everything was ready. And they wouldn't be, they, Archie and Edith, wouldn't be back for another half hour or so. So Mike thought they would run upstairs, and he coaxed uh, uh, Gloria to run up there with him. They no sooner got upstairs when the front door opened. Archie needed to go home early because he hated the sermon, (laughs) he hated the minister, and he was fuming. Uh, And they came in early from church. And uh, the kids upstairs heard that, came running down, buttoning a shirt or something. And uh, Archie sees them, and he says, 11 o'clock of a Sunday morning. That line had to come out. Now, we had gone through all the arguments about Spick and spade and he and this and you know, Archie's language. Uh this now was the last moment and they wanted that line out. And the reason they wanted that line out was it caused the audience to to imagine, to picture what he was talking about happening at eleven o'clock on a Sunday morning. I said, Well that Occurred when they ran upstairs. It's, uh. by the way, if the audience hasn't picked up, it, it's mommy and daddy stuff
2: that they were doing doing upstairs. Yes. Like, grown-up activities. Yes. I
3: mean, it was—and they were married on top of that.
2: <laughs> yeah. It wasn't
3: like they weren't. It, it, this knocked me out that CBS thought it would cause people to actually see the picture— <laughs> of what might be happening there.
2: Well, and also that they would see the picture, uh, imagine that picture happening at that time when God
3: was probably watching. Yes, 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning. <laughs> so, right. Anyway, it was the day the show was on the air. It, had been, it, was, it was going on three hours earlier, of course, in New York. And I got a call a half hour before. It went on in New York to say they were not cutting the line because they had the ability to cut the line. And I had said, cut the line, and I'm out of here. And I'm back to my... I would be at uh, United Artists with three pictures.
2: We have to go to a quick break. When we return even more with the late, great Norman Lear, it's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org
0: and NPR. This message comes from Apple Card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase. That's 3% on products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply.
2: This message comes from NPR sponsor Prime Video. Find your favorite shows like Reacher Season 2 Rent or buy new release movies like Hunger Games, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. Get everything included with Prime and add on hundreds of streamers like Max for True Detective Night Country. One app, one password, Prime Video. Find your happy place. Restrictions apply. Prime membership not required to rent or buy. Prime membership required for add-on subscriptions. See Amazon.com slash Amazon Prime for details.
1: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Capella University. With Capella's FlexPath Learning Format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.
2: Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you're just joining us, we're replaying my 2016 conversation with the great Norman Lear, the creator of All in the Family, Sanford and Son, and Moore, died this past December. He was 101. Let's get back into the rest of our conversation. How confident were you, especially when you started making the show, that uh, presenting Archie Bunker in this family and having him you know, have the kind of retrograde views that he had and the the kind of language that he used on network television when there were only three networks was a good idea. Were you absolutely confident? Or did you feel like you were kind of rolling the dice and had an 80-20 chance that it was the right decision?
3: Well, I I was very confident uh, that it would be no big deal with the American people because there was nothing we were doing that they couldn't hear in any schoolyard or up the street, down the street, across the street from each other. We did none of the problems we dealt with were anything. All, were all the illnesses, or social problems, or economic problems, or you know, abo- up to and including abortion—that was on Maude. Uh That you know—that was common in every family in America. Those those problems. Nobody. We weren't educating anybody so much as discussing it. I mean we we're introducing new subjects <laughs> and uh, Archie himself uh you know I'd like to nickel for everybody who said their dad their uncle their grandfather their you know their neighbor everybody recognized the character
2: sitcoms aren't often about actual problems I mean you need a problem to have you know to turn a plot you know there's no plot without a conflict but yeah. You know, usually a sitcom is a comforting, recognizable set of friends on television that you have, and their problems are um, silly nonsense, misunderstandings, the boss is coming over and we have to make a casserole, whatever. Why did you feel so strongly that the problems on a sitcom should be
3: what you called real problems? I don't know that there was any uh, decision to go in that direction. I just dealt with what I knew. And, uh, and I, as I started to say, invite, invited other writers to uh, – uh, it wasn't new to them. We were sharing what we were living. We all read a couple of newspapers. That was kind of an instruction to everybody. Read a couple of newspapers, pay attention to your family, your wife's problems, your kids' problems in school, you know their problems as opposed to the social order and, and the culture generally. And we, we came in and started to talk about what we were all reading. Somebody said, did you see this? Hypertension in black males has risen. Well, wouldn't that be a great subject for Good Times and uh, and John, uh, John uh, Evans? Uh, and so we did it. And by the way, when we did that specific, specific, that's exactly when we learned there were tens of thousands of phone calls to local stations around the country from African-American families that wanted more information. That hadn't happened before. By the time it was in reruns, this was, let's say, October or December, by the time it was in rerun in May, I don't know whether they had taken some of the content out or whether they gave up a commercial, but they did have uh, an advisory at the end of the show instructing anybody that was interested to call this and that number.
2: You know, sometimes I think about, you know, you and I are sitting in this studio. It's just the two of us in the studio. There's two or three people sitting outside the studio. And once in a while, I kind of flash to the fact that, oh, we're talking to each other in real life here, one-to-one. But listening to this are like football stadiums worth of people. Like, a this is a... You know, one of NPR's least successful shows, and it's still a few football stadiums. You know what I mean? Like college football stadiums, big football stadiums. And sometimes I'm kind of cowed by that.
3: Just a little. You know what it causes me to think? What? Every single one of those people filling those stadiums, this is It took all of their lives, every hour and minute of their lives, to get to the moment where they're sitting in the stadium listening to us. It took me 94 years, some months, some weeks, some days, some hours, some minutes, to get here to say what I've just said. Every split second. There's no contest about it. It's it's altogether correct.
2: What was it like for you in the 70s when... You know, at one point you had six of the top 10 TV shows on television in a world where there were only three television networks. So literally dozens of millions of people were listening, were watching each one of the shows that you were in charge of. And, you know, to some extent, you're just trying to make, you're just trying to make a fun
3: family sitcom. You know what I mean? That's right. (laughs) But, But that's absolutely right. No, no more than that. What, we were serious people, all of them. My mind is scanning the faces and memories of the people I worked with, large, great collaboration. But we were all people who took life seriously and happened to see, understand the foolishness of the human condition. There's no situation that where there isn't something to laugh at. I want to talk a little bit about your
2: childhood and the time that you spent before you were the most successful television producer in America. Your dad was a salesman. Um, was he out of the house a lot?
3: Uh, he, I don't remember him as a traveler. He was a salesman and a hustler and he did a lot of naughty things. Um, But I don't remember him traveling, except for the one. uh, He was taking a trip to Oklahoma, and uh, some other guys were involved with it. I remember my mother saying, "Uh, I don't like those men, Herman. I don't want you dealing with those men. And uh, that's when I heard "stifle," Jeanette. And, uh, And he would be, and he went. But... On this particular trip with those particular guys, when he came back, he was arrested for trying to sell, he, trying, having to tried to sell uh, some fake bonds. And uh, anyway, he, and he went to. They took him for three years. So that had, an, I would say, an enormous influence on this nine years old at the time. When you were six, seven, and
2: eight years old. Um, what did you think about what your dad did?
3: I'm not sure I understood what he did. And, and it was always something different. You know, I remember he was working for a, a, uh, a, a, a candy company that made s- something that was going to put Milky Way out of business. <laughs> he always was going to make a million dollars in 10 days to two weeks, Tops. Tops. Uh, once was with this bar of candy. I remember I was eight years old or something, and I was trying to sell it outside of Ebbets Field. We were living in Brooklyn. It was a couple of years we lived in Brooklyn. Uh, and then he, had, he ran into a guy who made uh, invented a pair of slippers with a light in the toe you know, a little light. So, you, you, you get out of bed and you find your way to the bathroom. Uh, and he was going to make a million dollars with that. <laughs> it's like a joke about a thing. It the is guy like a joke. I, well, you know, I of. did a, an episode of All in the <laughs> Family where Archie ran into such a guy and he was going to make a billion dollars. <laughs> I mean, uh, your
2: your father... Must have been to have made any kind of career in that business and in that world. He must have had charm.
3: Did you feel oh, like? Oh, he had charm. Yeah. He leaned into this is what I loved about him. He leaned into life. You know, like Arthur Miller's salesman, he went out into the world with a shoe shine and a, you know, fire in his eyes. And he came back feeling the same way. He always came back bringing something my mother should have picked up at the store. (laughs) Uh, He was so strong but dominated by her. I mean, one of the things
2: that it seems like to me is it can be really hard to have a parent who is that kind of outwardly fun and charming and like... Beguiling, Like, you're fascinated by your parents, anyone. And it can be really hard if that person is also someone where, you know, when you get sucked in, you don't know what you're going to get. Right. That can be really scary, especially when you're a kid.
3: Well, when you, it's so interesting. I, there was no way to depend on him. I don't know that I knew that at the time, but it turned out. And yet, he did some grandstand things that were just amazing. One, I I did an episode on Maud, and it won an Emmy. And the story as it existed with my dad was that I loved theater from my earliest memories. And uh, my favorite play was uh, Lillian. Ferenc Monar's Lillian. It later became a musical called Carousel. And I get tickets to see it. And I'm taking my best girlfriend, who much later became my first wife, and uh, I'm going to pick her up in, in the car that Sid Pasternak and I bought for like $150, some Model T or A or something for it. And, uh, and my father says to me the day of the event, Norman, I'm going to come early. I want you to take my Hudson Terraplane. You're taking your best girl to Westport. So he needs to get back at 2 or 3 o'clock, let's say, uh, in order for me <clears throat> to take his car in time to pick up Charlotte in West Hartford, Connecticut. He's not there in time, and he's not there a half hour later, and 50 minutes later or whatever, I get into my Model T, and I drive, I pick up Charlotte and West Hartford, and I drive through Middletown and Danbury and this place and that place into New Haven, and I hear honk, 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 honk. My father, having gotten home very late, chased me <laughs> and found me on the Merritt Parkway. Honked, 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 we changed cars. The grandstand act, you know, of all time.
2: I mean, there's something about that kind of story where, you know, that parent has made themselves the hero and the center of that story in doing that act. You know, they're the ones who have failed in trying to help their child, and their child is the one who's supposed to be the center of the story, and they manage to make themselves both the hero of the story and the center of it. You know, it's right. it, it's like in some way it's your you know it's your dad c- pulling the rug out from under you.
3: I as often as I've told the story over the year, I've never had that thought. Nobody's ever seen it that way. It's, it couldn't be more correct. And it so fits the character, and it so amazes me that I never had that thought. Of course, it wasn't all for me. It was, in a sense, all for him. I want to repeat my age. I'm 94 years old. I've just had an insight in this conversation that I might have had at 50, but it took me 94 years to get to it. And... I think that's life-giving, that the knowledge, that an insight that important can be there waiting for you to pick it up all those years, and it we never stop growing.
2: We'll wrap up my conversation with Norman Lear after a break. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR.
1: This message comes from NPR sponsor Capital One. The Capital One Venture X business card has no preset spending limit, so the card's purchasing power can adapt to meet business needs. Plus, the card earns unlimited double miles on every purchase, so the more a business spends, the more miles earned. And when traveling, the Venture X business card grants access to over 1,300 airport lounges. The Venture X business card What's in your wallet? Terms and conditions apply. Find out more at CapitalOne.com/Venture X business.
2: The following are real reenactments of pretend emergency calls.
3: 911? My husband! It's my husband! Calm down, please. What about
0: your husband? He, he loads the dishwasher wrong. Please help! Please help me! <laughs> Where are you now, ma'am? At the kitchen table. I was with my dad. He mispronounced his words intentionally. There are plenty of podcasts on the hunt for justice, but only one podcast has the courage to take on The Silly Crimes. Judge John Hodgman, the only true crime podcast that won't leave you feeling sad and bad and scared for once. Only on MaximumFun.org.
2: It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We're replaying my conversation with television legend Norman Lear, who died last month. You wrote uh, for years on the kind of television comedy shows that were popular in the late 1950s through the early 1970s, which were, you know, comedy variety shows that had sketches and songs in them and, um, you know, stuff like that. Uh, there's a shot in the movie of of uh, uh, of you in a uh, Martin and Lewis TV show. Yeah. Yeah. Um, running on stage that you were writing for did you like that kind of show
3: I loved that kind of show I miss that kind of show every day of my life a variety show a variety show what 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 thing that you worked on in those years were you proudest of I loved uh, I loved the uh, you know I, we wrote the first three years of the Martin and Lewis Colgate comedy hour and uh, that's when Jerry was at his he was genius. He was so funny. Uh, I loved uh, Martha Ray. We did a book musical. Uh, we used current songs. We didn't have new songs and so forth, and a chorus. And uh, but they were book musical stories. Uh, and loved doing. I, I loved it all. I loved George Gobel. My God, it was just great fun working with George Gobel. We did a Danny Kaye special. I'll never forget. Bobby Darren was a dream, uh, especially we did with him. We became great friends. Uh, it was <laughs>
2: it was all good. Were you thinking about during those years? Were you thinking about families? I mean, the shows that the shows that made you
3: a legendary television producer. Uh, well, you know how they began. They began two things happened. In close proximity Bud Yorkin my partner was overseas and he saw an episode of uh, Till Death Us Do Part and he told me about it on the on the phone and I said oh my god what an idea this is the British show that All in the Family was based upon the, yes yeah it, yeah and uh, we gotta do this I, you know and, and Bud said honestly you're not gonna get this done in America Well, he says this in the film. But this, I love this. Phil Sharp was a friend. He was a writer. He was in New York for a couple of days, stayed with me while Bud was over uh, abroad. And he had just gone through a divorce with four kids. I was going through a divorce with one kid. I was having a very difficult time. I said, how did it go with your divorce? He said, fine. I said, fine? He said, yeah, it was simple. You had four kids. I have one. I'm going through hell. He said, all she wanted was my Joan Davis reruns. He had written and conceived the Joan Davis show, which was a major show, at a time when reruns you know, were worth a fortune. And he just gave her the reruns, and he was free, at which moment I decided, I have to do a situation comedy. (laughs) (laughs) Now, we did a lot of important television, all the Danny Case and Jack Benny and, you know, uh, Bobby Darin, but you own nothing. Phil did a situation comedy and owned something. So, it was weeks or months or days, I don't know, after, but... Called my attention to to death as to part, and the two th- ideas came together.
2: When you saw that British sitcom, did you see more than just a great show? I mean, did it
3: have emotional resonance for you? I I didn't see it till we were already on the air. That's oh, wow. when I saw them. the 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 little piece that you saw in the uh, in the show in the documentary, uh, I remember that very well from having seen it we were like three shows four shows in
2: so in a way like All in the Family was adapted from a verbal description from a friend of that British show yes
3: well (laughs) well, because it's
2: about this because
3: because the characters came clearly to mind right I have I was a brother and sister and my father and mother and that's what this was about except the sister was in that case was a wife
2: It must have been hard to be doing that, especially when you had, you know, at the point when you were, you know, moving between rehearsal spaces, (laughs) running six shows at a time or whatever it was, that you realized that um, at some point you like, you couldn't rule by fiat, even though you were the boss um, purely. And you had to manage all of these, really sensitive issues not just as they turned out on camera but as they played across this world of dozens of people dozens of artists that you were working with.
3: Mhm. Was that a question?
2: Yeah, I mean, uh-huh was a fair enough answer to it. <laughs> uh, I guess it was more of a prompt. It was a it must have been a I can,
3: I can well, phrase it differently. What, did, if I, I think I... Under, if how I had, did
2: it feel to be in that position?
3: Well, I I, write, I said in the book, and this is what comes to mind now, <clears throat> was it stressful? Exceedingly stressful. But it was, I, I think there is stress and there is joyful stress. Understand that every single time uh, every single problem show or episode or whatever, the wind up was a performance in front of a live audience and laughter. So, <laughs> the fact of it all is, every time it ended in laughter. So, I mean, if that isn't joyful stress, I, don't, I it's, it, it's the most unusual uh, demonstration of joyful stress because it can only happen in this uh, in this situation. And that's what I lived through, laughing at the end of every problem and all of us clapping each other in the back and hugging each other at the end of a show.
2: <laughs> when you uh, walked away from your uh, sitcom business, which you did um, right around the end of the 70s, beginning
3: of the 80s, did you miss it? No. No. I was, I was, yeah, everything's a production. Every day is a production. I was traveling around the country, uh, pulling people together for what became People for the American Way. And I was, it was like another production. Did you miss the jokes? I mean, like, I work in
2: comedy a little bit too. And the thing that I love the most about it, Relative to the you know relatively serious stuff that I do here on this show, for example, is I just love the idea that part of going to work is making a bunch of dumb jokes with people who are f- funny. It's
3: it's the greatest. <laughs> what a joy it is! It is the greatest. But you know, this is very interesting because I've done a lot of talking. Uh, as a result of the book and then the film and so forth, and you're, you've asked me a, a, a number of questions that our first time was <laughs> so asking me. Did I miss uh, the shows? I, strangely enough, I haven't been asked that before, and I haven't thought about it. I think it's a fact that if I missed, I would feel something right now thinking about it. And I would have clear memories of missing. And I didn't. I stayed in touch with a lot of it because my good friends and executives that took over, you know, we would talk. and But I don't recall. I was so involved in what I was doing and getting such a kick out of pulling that together. I don't really recall missing I I have one last question for you, and
2: uh, I'm sorry that we're very nearly out of time. It's been so much fun to get to talk to you. Um, There's this brief... No less fun on this side. Thank you. There's this brief allusion in the film uh, to one of your first jobs, which was working at Coney Island. I watched this American experience that I think Rick Burns made about Coney Island one time, and I'm just, like, totally obsessed and one of the most amazing moments in that is, you know, Al Lewis, who is famous as Gr- Grandpa Munster, uh, worked at Coney Island for years as a young man, and uh-huh. and and he offers some of the patter that he had for his various jobs. And I wonder if any of your jobs, oh at yeah,
3: Coney Island had patter. <laughs> yeah, I, I, uh, one of the jobs was barking with a megaphone. Uh, uh, there were two uh, booths uh, where you could ha- have your picture taken. Six for a nickel. Six poses for a nickel. It's a bargain. And uh, well, These things I, sell themselves. I, and my megaphone, was saying, hey, hey, uh, it's six for a nickel, five cents, the only place on the island. Hey, little girl, you ought to be in pictures. Come on. And... Uh, i remember that part of that rap uh i also work <laughs> i love this i also worked for a guy uh calling people uh to uh you know a piece of coin it, it was he was indian uh and uh he was cooking corn in a barrel and uh selling the corn and no, I, I I barked a little for him, and then helped, but he uh, he stopped me at one point. This has nothing to do with the barking, but he stopped me at one point, and as if he was teaching me the lesson of lessons, he said, uh, "You're putting the butter on first. You put the salt on first." The reason you put the salt on first is the butter is more expensive than the salt. When you put the salt on first, you use less butter. Put the salt on first. <laughs> I have never had a New York coin without thinking of that since. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I, I got to tell you, like, you're 94 years old, and, uh, you know, you do a fair amount of press for various things. Here's a Here's a free tip. Anytime anybody asks you what you've learned in your 94 years, give them that corn stuff. And at 94, nobody's going nobody's gonna to get up in your face about it. They're just going to nod like that was that's the wisest thing they've ever heard, like <laughs> pretend to write it down. <laughs> that's a keeper, Norman Lear. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Thank you so much for taking all this time to be on Bullseye. What an honor to
3: get to talk to you. It was the pleasure of pleasures. Norman Lear from
2: 2016. As we mentioned before, Lear died this past December at 101. The PBS documentary on Norman Lear, Norman Lear, Just Another Version of You, is wonderful. You can stream it for free on Canopy. All you need is a library card. You can also rent it just about anywhere. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California. Here at my house, it's pouring rain and uh, my outgoing mail got really wet. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producers are Jesus Ambrosio and Richard Roby. Our production fellow at Maximum Fun is Brianna Paz. We get booking help from Mara Davis. Our interstitial music is by DJW, also known as Dan Wally. Our theme song is called Huddle Formation. It was written and recorded by the Go team, thanks to them and to their label, Memphis Industries. Bullseye is on Instagram. We share interview highlights, behind-the-scenes looks, and more there. We are at Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. We're also on Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook. I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off.
1: Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from Bombas. Bombas makes absurdly soft socks, underwear, and t-shirts. And for every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Get 20% off your first purchase at bombas.com NPR and use code NPR.